following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Hey everybody, before we get going, we'd like to ask you a favor by having you fill out a less than five minute survey. Just go to podcastone.com slash my survey or go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. It's completely anonymous and your responses will help us find the best advertisers for you, our listeners. Even if you filled one out in the past, it'd still be helpful to do another. Thanks for taking the time. Your efforts will help Overworld stay free to download with minimal ads. Podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. My name is Matt Perez. My name is Satchel Drinks. And this is Overworld where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. And support for Forbes Overworld comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Hey everybody, uh, it's Matt. Uh, Satchel's out this week, um, but have a great guest this week. Uh, about a month ago, a game called Moonlighter came out. It's kind of like a, a Zelda-ish roguelike. It's uh, kind of split into two parts. Uh, you do a bit of dungeon crawling during the night sequences, and it very much resembles kind of a Link to the Past vibe. Um, you know, randomized dungeons. Uh, and you uh, basically are, are there to loot and, and see how far you can get uh, before escaping. Uh, but during the day, you end up being a shopkeeper and you put your loot on display and figure out what your customers want. You know, you have to you know, uh, follow supply and demand. If they want uh, a certain item, maybe you can boost up the, uh, how much you're charging for it. And you, you have to judge how much you really can charge for things. You know, you might put a $100 gold price tag on it and they think they're getting a great deal and it's like oh i just gave that away so let me bump it up to like maybe 500 and then they get really upset about it and you have to find the uh the perfect uh median place for it uh it's really a great addictive kind of gameplay loop where the day sequences are that shopkeeping uh and the night sequences are combat uh and you can also uh invest in the town you know upgrade uh, certain t- shops, uh, and you obviously benefit from it. Build up new items, uh, get potions and weapons. Uh, you can end up getting an investment banker. Uh, it's a really cool concept, and like I said, super addictive loop. It reminds me a little bit of Sturdy Valley, where every you know you go through one loop, and you think that's oh that that that'll be my uh, game time, but you keep going back because. You know, you just want to get more items and, and upgrade your shop to uh, better sell them and, uh, you know, get further and further into the dungeons because there is also a bit of a story and narrative. So really great debut game from a Spanish studio called Digital Sun. And uh, I sat down and talked to the founder, Javier Jimenez. So uh, let's uh, jump into that. Javier, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks to you for having me. Yeah. So uh, for people unaware, could you uh, describe your game Moonlighter? Uh, sure, it's uh, it's an action RPG game about a shopkeeper 
that dreams of being a hero likes his customers. So you play as the average shopkeeper of a fantasy RPG that in order to sell stuff on the shop needs to go uh, during the night to some dungeons nearby his town, fight the enemies, get the loot, and then head back to the to the town and, and sell it for, for profit. And then he can get gold that he can invest in many things to get stronger and eventually fulfill his dream of being a, of being a hero. So the, the, there is a story to the game, there is an ending, but it's pretty much played inside this cycle of uh, dungeoning, dungeon crawling, and shopkeeping, uh, town investment, the management side to it, uh, mixed together. So it's played like a roguelite, we could say, but eventually there is an ending to the game and, and there is a story to it. It's not a very narrative game. It's basically focused on how the two sides of it interact. Yeah. It's kind of like a... It has like your dungeon elements are kind of like a Zelda, right? But, but then like it really is interesting to like have to like do the shopkeeping and set the prices and everything. It's a really cool mix. Where, where did the uh, idea for it come from? Uh, well, it all came from wondering what it would be to play like the average shopkeeper of your fantasy game. We didn't know that there were any games that have tried this concept before. There are a couple. There are two Japanese games that have done it. One is part of the Dragon Quest series in the 90s, and the other one is called Reseteer. But we didn't know about them when we started, so it was all like what it would be to play as a shopkeeper. And also from uh, the influence we have of games we love, like roguelikes, like The Binding of Isaac, which is obviously influenced by original Zeldas. And also games like Rogue Legacy, maybe, for the game structure. And yeah, things like Zelda Diminished Cap, specifically for art. So the influence of several games, plus wondering how it would be to play as a shopkeeper. Is kind of where the the, the 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 origin of the idea of Moonlighter came together. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about the start of your studio, Digital Sun? Like, when did it begin, and what was your experience at the time? Like, what brought you to creating the studio? Uh, well, what brought me to create the studio? I had already started companies in other aspects. I am a, a computer scientist, you could say, by training, by college. But I always I have always been a gamer, and I used to develop games. I think I did my first game when I was like 11 years old, wow. and then at 19 or 20 or something like that, I stopped doing that because I was supposed to get a serious job or something. <laughs> and then when I was 30, I was a little tired of you know working in the enterprise software industry, which was a little boring for me after a while. And yeah, I joined with Ruben, my current partner, and we. We discussed starting a company. I suggested the video game industry because it felt like a fun place to work with. And this happened like five years ago, and I'm never looking back. I, I, I don't. I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy. I made the decision every single minute of it. I, I love the fact that I moved to this industry. So I was already an entrepreneur, and you could say that I decided to uh, start a company in something I was really passionate about instead of something that I felt was a good idea or whatever. Something I really, really cared for. Nice. Yeah, before um, uh, starting up on Moonlighter, were you doing uh, work for hire with like game making? Yes, yes, yes. When we started the company, we were like, okay, so we want to start a video game company and we know a little about business, but we don't know much about creating video games because, uh, I don't know, you know, what, what I used when I was 15 years old, <laughs> I, I couldn't use that anymore probably. <laughs> so um, we had to start from the ground, uh, bring that team together, uh, develop our skills. And, and also make a sustainable business. So it, it felt like a good idea to start as a work for hire company, a company we call Brave Zero, which is still very important. It's still going on. 
And we have done over 50 game projects in, in, in five years. Some of them very small, some of them larger, but a lot of projects. So we started slowly uh, growing a team. Uh, we are a 30 person company right now. So we are probably larger than you are your typical indie studio because we have that side that has worked for other people during the, the last years. And the way we did it is um, we learned the craft while working for customers. And every money we made on that, we, we poured it into our own prototypes because we always have the plan of developing of our own games. We wanted to do indie games. We wanted to do our own stuff. So we did several prototypes with any money we made on the on the contract part of the company. And eventually we came up with this idea about the shopkeeper that became Moonlighter. And slowly, uh, you could say that the company shifted from being focused on, on contract work to being focused as we are right now on our own IPs and original ideas. So it's been, it's, it's been, uh, it's been quite a story in five years to move from one thing to the other to try to, you know, make meets end. I believe is the English expression. Mm-hmm. Try to make everything financially sustainable. Uh, gather a very talented team together, uh, you know, without any external investment or anything. It, it's been um, it's been fun, honestly. It's been fun. Yeah, I was gonna ask. Like, I bet like it's really great practice to like just try out and and create a bunch of different games. And I was gonna also ask. Um, I, I guess, is it fairly consistent? You know, when people talk about, like, margins in the game industry, it can kind of sometimes be drastic. But uh, I guess, like, with work for hire, maybe it's a little bit more consistent? Yeah, that, that's a very good question, actually. Uh, when you work as a contractor as work for hire, you obviously you have your prices and you have kind of your margins. Some projects might be better than others. But basically, let's say you make... 30% margin on every project. Okay, so that 30% we put it into our own games. And uh, the problem with service work is that sometimes you have a lot of work and sometimes you have less work. Mm. So during the spare time that we had when we didn't have so many projects, or maybe we have just hired, you know, let's say we have hired from seven to 12 people and then we didn't get so much work. So we invested some of the spare time in trying to deploy our own original ideas. And we always felt that being work for hire was a, was a good business. It's interesting, and we we enjoyed a lot of the games we did for other people, and we still do. Some of them are very very cool, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's it's very attractive to do your own things and take the risk, and you know, let's put three hundred thousand dollars in a game or whatever and see if it works. You can get zero as a return, or you can make five times what you invested. So we kind of wanted to at least try that out. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you can say that work for hire is safe, but at the at the same time, it fluctuates a lot. Sometimes you get a lot of uh, workload and and sometimes less. And investing in your own games is much more um, risky, challenging, but also more rewarding, especially in a creative perspective. Yeah, it's kind of like freelancing in that in that sense. I think. Um, I pro- probably yeah. Yeah. Well, how many prototypes did you have before you like you hit on the Moonlighter prototype? I mean, like, like slightly serious, maybe four, something like that. Okay. A couple of others, smaller things we did in game jams and, and similar things, but things that we did for a couple of months before realizing that maybe it was not a good idea, we did like four. Some of them were actually quite cool, so we might want to revisit them down the road. One of them was like a mixture of a Little Big Planet, where the user could, the player could uh, create their own levels. Mixed with something like uh, what's the name? Like Gang Beast, this game where you can 
control a ragdoll and it creates very funny situations because it's all based on physics. Mm -hmm. So some of the ideas were pretty cool, but back in the day we felt it, it was like too large for us. But we did like four or five and Moonlighter was the first that we were like, okay, this looks very good and this looks like something we can actually uh, finish and deliver. So we decided to focus on that one. Yeah. How do, how do you uh, how does that uh, work like um, as far as uh, creating prototypes? Um, do, is it more of like a, a the whole staff itself is like throwing out ideas and like whatever the best idea is is uh, yeah. is the one taken? I guess that every studio does it in a in a different manner. Mm -hmm. In our case, we have tried different things. One thing we don't do is um, uh, the, the the partners of the studio, the founders, me and Ruben are not the creative directors of the projects. I mean, we, 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 we suggest things, we criticize things, we, we give our own opinion, but we are not the creative directors because uh, we feel everybody in the team should be invested in that and good ideas can come from anybody. So we are pretty democratic in that sense. So we did uh, we did uh, voting back in the day for ideas. Know that we are larger, it's, it's a little harder to do voting because 30 people, it can be very time consuming, everybody coming up with ideas and everybody voting. So we tend to leave the door open for anybody to pitch an idea. And then we have systems internally to review them by some senior members, people that we think have a good um, good experience or good knowledge. For example, the creative director of Moonlighter, who is called David Fernandez, uh, and who came up with the idea of Moonlighter and has been the lead on the project. He's one of the guys that we might say, hey, do you think this idea that this other uh, person uh, pitched is a good idea? So it's, it's kind of a discussion internally continually but it's, it's not very it's not very formal to be honest and maybe we should be a little more formal so back in the day it was like everybody could pitch anything and we did like voting etc and right now it's it's like anybody can pitch and then we kind of discuss it in the office and yeah i mean the, the final saying in in moving forward or not with a with a with a project it's partially done by me and ruben but it has a lot to do also with talking to external publishers so we can might come up with an idea and say okay let, let's discuss this with some publishers you know and see if they also think this is a good idea because if they don't maybe it's because it's not a good idea so it's it's kind of gathering as many opinions as possible and if there is a consensus if many of them think it's a good idea then it might be you know because in in creative things it's, it's super hard because my opinion is just my opinion and i have my personal tastes and, and biases so it's it's super hard oh yeah i'm super. sure <laughs> yeah. So you used um, Kickstarter to fund the game. Like, what made you make that decision? And like, when did you decide like that made sense for you in the game? In, in the case of Moonlighter, or in general? Uh, in Moonlighter. Uh, in Moonlighter, it was like a um, what, what's the word in English? Like a hunch, I think is the word. Like this looks good. We think this idea from David is promising, and we should we should this, this should be the one we we take the risk on. And we, we, we did that, so we started working on a prototype. We, we made a lot of mistakes. For example, we didn't have time to do a proper pre-production, and pre-production is, is very important. So we didn't have enough time to do a lot of design, a lot of art pre-production early. But we got a little lucky, I guess, and we contacted with Square Enix and through a program they have, which is called Square Enix Collective. And we it's a platform where you pitch your idea and the community votes ideas and we were the the highest voted project that had ever passed through the platform back then back in the day so Skrenix um, helped us um, launch a kickstarter campaign so they helped us a lot with the communication of the kickstarter campaign 
and it was quite successful. We raised uh, $134,000. So it was like, um, it really gave us a lot of confidence, the fact that the Square Enix liked the project and the fact that the Kickstarter worked well. People seemed to really like the idea and, and what they saw about the game. So it was a slow process of, we believe in this, let's work a little more, then talking to external people, doing this Square Enix collective thing, then the Kickstarter, we kind of validated that maybe it was a good idea. It was it was potentially a, a good game. So it was a step by step process. But I'm like, I'm like always wondering about everything we do. We have three projects in pre production right now. So I'm like constantly doubting everything we do. Like, is this good enough? Is this really really good? Mm -hmm. It's 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 um, maybe it's, it's it's something I just do because I am this way. But I think it's healthy to always. Um, worry if it's good enough because there are so many games right now being released that for us as studios it's very important to try to do our best on everything we do and that the idea is, is worth it so we try to validate every step in the process and for moonlighter it was like a slow process of this is the most voted idea okay let's prototype it we believe this looks very good and we can do it okay let's pitch it around okay screen is like it let's move ahead okay the kickstarter work let's move ahead Okay, we got a publisher, which was 11-bit studios, and they seem to like it. Let's move ahead. So it was like a step-by-step -step validation of, of it. Oh, yeah. Well, like, you got, yeah, like 130,000. Like, what, what kind of, like, um, was there, like, now, like, a, a lot of pressure? Or was it validation? Uh, you, you mean pressure after the Kickstarter? Yeah, of like, oh, now we have to make a game. <laughs> like, we, we have uh, 130,000 in crowdfunding, you know? I mean... I think that even if we only had raised the goal, which was uh, 40k, we would have finished the game. So we, we, we could fund most of it with our contract part. Obviously, the money from Kickstarter was incredibly useful and really made the game much, much better. Uh, but we will have tried to finish it, you know, maybe not in the scenario of raising $1,000 in the Kickstarter and everybody hating it, then maybe we will have canceled the project. But after the Kickstarter, it was like, this might work. It's like it gives us a lot of faith. Like people mm -hmm. like the concept. If we are able, and it is only our first game, so we were and still are very humble about it. It's super hard to make good games. But if we are able to make a proper game, a good game, something that really works, we think the idea is good enough, and it will it will work. So it gives us a lot of confidence, and obviously also a lot of pressure. But pressure was okay. We never felt that too much. It was like, I mean, you don't feel pressure when it's what you want to do. Mm -hmm. did like anything change like because it's like three times uh your goal did like many things on your budget change did timelines change or or is it more like we a little, a little. okay yeah, yeah yeah we 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 extended the scope of the project a little there are some things that we wanted to do that have been able to be done and some things we have on the on the on the Kickstarter stretch goals are still to be released, but we are working on them right now because we are still working on Moonlighter. Things like Familiars, for example, are, are maybe, maybe be, gonna come. And and this is a, what's the name? This is a premiere I'm giving you. But th those kind of thing is gonna, is gonna, is gonna happen because we promised them on the Kickstarter and we want to deliver. So yes, it, it made the scope of the project a little more ambitious. And we're taking a quick break now, but we'll be right back. 
Support for the Forbes podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! So what was like development like for the game? Were there many bumps in the road? Were, was it pretty expected uh, or some unexpected stuff going on? Uh, on one hand, I will say that the fact that we had experience as a contract team already made us quite uh, professional and quite efficient. I think we are a very, uh, a very good company at actually getting things done. We're pretty good at that because we had to do that to make a living, to eat for a very long time, we had to do that. So we had uh, internal processes and the culture of the team, and, and we have very, very talented people. So I think we're pretty good at delivering. So the parade we went pretty well for a first-time studio because Moonlighter is larger than anything we had done before. So I would say it went pretty well. On the other hand, we made rookie mistakes, like, for example, not enough pre-production. Uh, on, on the current project that we're working on, we're, we're giving much more room and much more time to do a proper prototyping, art direction, a proper game design at the beginning, not go straight into production like with Moonlighter. And that's something we did not very good in, in Moonlighter. And another thing, for example, we seriously underestimated how much it took to actually finish a game. The whole quality assurance process of, of testing, debugging, and porting to consoles uh, that was much more time consuming than we expected. Probably like it probably delayed us like five or six months. Mm-hmm. Well, I think on the the Kickstarter, the original like um, timeline was like March 2017, right? Like, did did you have to like push that back a, a bit? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, 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 absolutely. Part of it was because of the scope, uh, because after the Kickstarter, we had to do more things, and another six or eight months you can add because of porting to all consoles on release, that was tricky, and also debugging and quality assurance is... It, Moonlighter is, is, is not a small game. It, it has a lot of systems, so it, it, it took it took a long time. And obviously, the fact that it's our first game, probably, we, we, we will be better at the next ones, probably. Mm. Actually, is, yeah, is Moonlighter on uh, Switch? Uh, not yet, but it's going to be released. I mean, it's already working. We are, like, mm. debugging, polishing, and, and talking to Nintendo for the certification. But it's gonna be released on on quarter three. 
Gotcha. Yeah, yeah I was going to say because uh, it's like twofold where a lot of indie developers are saying it sells really well. Like their games do very well on Switch, but like, yes, it is like a new platform and uh, I think it, they, they get released a little later than, um, you know, your PS4s and Xboxes right now. Yes, it, it's a little, the process is a little longer, uh, but we think we are very excited about uh, Moonlighter on the Switch. We, we, we think it's, it's, it's a very good game for the platform because oh, yeah. of looks very beautiful on the screen when you play it it feels very good and the the short and um, for the portable for for the short sessions mm-hmm. like play 20 minutes maybe do a dungeon get some money and and, and leave it and, and and continue tomorrow it, it works pretty well oh yeah i can imagine that loop is like perfect for it um so when did uh yeah you mentioned 11-bit studios um when did they come into the fold and and uh you know, it seems like there are a lot more publishers are having more presence in the indie scene. And can you tell me, like, what they provided for you and why you chose to go with them? Um, we talked to several publishers. Some of them we approached, some of them approached us. And we picked 11-bit studios because they were a studio. So they had already been successful with This War of Mine, which is a game we absolutely loved. And... We felt they were also very professional as publishers, even if they didn't have that much experience with publisher as publishers back in the day. They knew how to create games. They had done a very good job at selling their own games. And we felt that could do a very good job at, at selling Moonlighter in the indie market. Because other publishers we talked with maybe were for more for large style of marketing for triple A games, but eleven bit studios felt like a right choice for the type of game we wanted to do. So we talked to several publishers and it was the one we 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 thought was the best alternative for the game, and we are super happy about the decision. We are very very happy about Eleven Bit. We think they have been an excellent publisher in many many things, and and we actually would like to continue and publish more games with them because we think that we created a very good relationship that we hope we can continue in the future. So yeah, I, I think we we just thought it was the right decision, and I I right now I think it was the right decision. Mm. Was part of that um, that you know there's so many games on Steam. Uh, there's so many game like any games out now uh, that like having s- someone like Eleven Bit Studios be part of like your representation team like valuable. I, I believe in that 100. percent I think that uh, the market, the indie market, is not right now as it was five years ago. Unfortunately, uh, I mean, on one side, it's very good because there are a lot of games that you can play and a lot of people working on video games, and that's great. But the bad side of it is that many, many of those games won't make enough revenue to recover the costs. So it, it's being saturated and it's, 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 it's becoming harder for small studios to put their game out there and get visibility and get people to see their game. And maybe it's very good, but people will never play it because it's, it's getting harder to get people to see your game. So I believe that for an indie studio right now, it's better to do a slightly larger games. I mean, something that takes a little more time to do, it's a little larger. That's just my personal opinion. Just a little larger and uh, work with someone who can help you do uh, marketing and have presence and get the press and YouTubers, talk about your game, play it, so, so you get visibility. So super small indies right from their home, uh, just publish something in Steam, paying $100 with a very, very small game. It can work. I mean, Stardew Valley, in, and it was incredibly successful because it's a great game, but it's, it's getting harder and harder. So for us, our strategy is to do slightly larger games, things like 
like Moonlighter or, or even larger. You can call it uh, Super Indies or whatever, and find the right partners uh, for publishing that can help us with with marketing and localization and and store relations and all those things that really make make the game reach more people. Which is our final goal is to make our games be played by as many players and loved by as many players as possible. So we think partners can really re uh, publishers can be very good partners for indie studios to reach uh, people. And I also think that very very small games are a little harder right now in the current market. Mm -hmm. I think it, like tell me if I'm wrong, but it, it feels like a lot of it is um, uh, you have to like build up a like a following and build up a, a fan base before the game comes out, and and that might be kind of out of the realm of a lot of like smaller indies because they're more focused on doing the design and everything, and not so much on marketing, right? Yeah, that, that's the thing about doing video games that and selling video games is that there are so many things that you need to do. You need to do the design, you need to do the music, you need to do the programming, you need to do the art, and then you need to talk to press and you need to maybe go to conference and, and then you need, maybe you need to do trailers or you need to translate the game. There are so many different things that you need to do. And you need to talk to Nintendo and PlayStation and, and, and Microsoft. So it's there are so many things that I think it's good to have partners that are specialized in some aspects. I mean... Not every game and not every studio is the same. Understanding what works for us specifically, but yeah, it allows you to focus more on your game, make a very very good game, which is down the road is what matters most. If if the game is very good, if you're able to make a very good game, I think it makes everything else easier. Mm -hmm. What was um so you launched the game like what was like post launch like? Were were there a lot of like oh now there's a gazillion problems that we need to fix and, and still focus on the game? Yes, we had. <laughs> Yes, uh, I mean, I wish I could say that it was flawless, but it wasn't. We had some issues. I also believe that we were super quick at it. I mean, in five or six days, we had the first patch that solved the most critical issues. Some people criticized things like not being able to rebind properly or keys on PC, and, and they were right. There were some like properly uh, designed things. So we had some issues in the beginning, also bugs, but we have already released two patches. Uh, on most platforms because I believe that we are depending on PS4 for one of the and, and Xbox for one of the patches. But um, we, I mean, we probably could have done a little more quality assurance before the release. We thought the game was already very mature, but then you put it in front of so many people. It was very successful. So, so many people played that then you see a lot of problems at the same time. And we were like, okay, we did a lot of testing and our publisher did a lot of testing. We thought it was super mature, but it turns out there is this issue and this issue and this issue. So I can say that I will have liked the game to be a little more polished on release, but I'm happy that we were quite, quite quick at solving the issues. I'm, I'm proud of that. I think we we were there for players and solved the issues pretty quick. Yeah. Um, so you guys are based in uh, Valencia, Spain, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. What's the uh, game development scene like in Spain? Is there like a community of creators and stuff? Yes. Um I would say there is a, a very good level of um, interest and young people coming out of colleges that want to work in video games. Uh, there is like a good basis and foundation. There is a lot of talent around. There are so many, many Spanish professionals that had to go abroad to and work at larger studios, at AAA studios. That's pretty common because the problem with Spain is that we don't really have like a proper industry with larger, more professional companies that um, you know, kind of structure the industry, like 
maybe some people, for example, it's very common in the in the United States in the scene, people that work on a large studio, like maybe have triple A experience, and then they go indie. They they have a lot of experience. They have done it on. They have learned a lot on large projects for eight or ten years, and then they do something smaller. But they come with a lot of knowledge. So I think that having larger companies also helps a lot. They can maybe fund the games of a smaller studios. And in Spain, we had our chance, I would say, during the 90s and early 20s, early 2000s, with games like, do you remember a game called Commandos from Peter Studios? That sounds familiar. Yeah, Commandos was a, a very, very successful Spanish game. It's all like a lot, Commandos 1 and Commandos 2. Uh, but it never became a company like, I don't know, like Ubisoft or Paradox or companies they have in other countries. So we never had like these champions of the industry in Spain that would have really made other entrepreneurs say, okay, it's good to enter the gaming industry or investors or colleges, you know, maybe universities or it, maybe even the parents of families telling their kids, hey, go play video games because look at this guy. He's doing very well developing video games. We never um, consolidated an industry in Spain good enough, strong enough. So it's a, it's a proper reference for the people entering. I think that might be happening now. It's happening in the mobile space. In Barcelona, for example, there are very, very good mobile companies. And I hope that eventually we, 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 we can consolidate an industry. So Because I think that the, the foundation of it, like the basis, like the talent and the interest, is very, very strong. Yeah, it does seem like a lot more games are coming out of Spain, and it would be really interesting. Like I, um, the folks behind uh, Minute... Um, they're from like the Netherlands and, uh, you know, it, it, that is like a more, they have like a tight indie community, but at the same time, yes, they do have that, like they have guerrilla games in their backyard. They have her, like the two women horizon zero dawn. So I guess yeah, exactly. that's something that, uh, would hopefully, yeah, but in Spain, they have been some very good indie, indie titles that have been very, very successful. Um, much more than Moonlight. I mean, Moonlight has been very, very successful to be honest. We're super happy. But you have another one called They Are Billions, which is Spanish and it's incredibly good and sold incredibly well. So I hope we can repeat that and, and create an industry based on that. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I don't want to keep too much of your time, Javier. This has been uh, really great. Um, where can people uh, find you in Digital Sun and Moonlighter? Um, well, we're pretty easy to find. I'm like, personally, I'm on LinkedIn and my email is uh, javier.jimenez at uh, wildframemedia.com which is a little tricky I guess but I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn you can write this on on, 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 on the channel of Digital Sun for example through a website uh, contact the contact form in a website uh, I, I read those too so it's pretty easy I mean it's pretty public awesome well yeah thanks uh, so much for uh, talking to us okay thanks to you Matt have a nice day that's it for this episode of World. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drinks. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast1. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Oh. 
springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.